You're listening to Fight in Progress. With your hosts and stress coaches, founder of Under the Shield, Susan Simmons, and TomTheBomb.com. Fight in Progress grapples with the internal and external struggles in the daily lives of our men and women in law enforcement, the armed forces, and first responders. Tackling the tough topics and supporting those who support us. We hear you, and we're here for you. Welcome to Under the Shield Presents Fight in Progress with our hostess, Susan Simmons. Golly, it makes me feel like I need to put on an apron and... And, and, I tra- and where would you like tray. to be seated? <laughs> what would you like? Coffee, water, tea? <laughs> I don't think you've ever called me a hostess before. I don't think I like that term. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to come up with something. Yeah, I never worked in a restaurant. There's a real good reason why I never did. Because <laughs> I wouldn't have lasted even an hour. I don't yeah, think. I don't think I could put up with people like that. No, no. And, and you got hot items in your yeah. hand that you can accidentally... Right. Yeah, it it would not have gone well. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> and of course, this is TomTheBomb.com on the other <laughs> on the other mic here. And uh, I guess we have to kind of admit our flaws and our our shortcomings here. That well, we could. We actually have a guest here that. He's a return guest for us. <laughs> return guest. We lost his episode, people. I don't know how that happened, but. <laughs> and so we're not strangers to this guest, but y'all might be. Um, but boy, we got things in place now that will never happen again. That was embarrassing. <laughs> and of all people, a lawyer. I know. Oh, man. <laughs> Yeah, that hurt. I kept thinking, oh, is there something he can sue us for? <laughs> Don't go there, Susan. I know. I may, have, I may have planted seeds now. You remember what this week's been like. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Hey, we have no money, Scott. We are dead broke, honey. So you can try, but it ain't gonna get, you can't get blood from a turnip is all I can say to you. <laughs> I said that a lot this week. <laughs> so, Scott, welcome back to the program, at least to the recording part of it. We had a pretty good one warm up there and I hope you can remember everything we talked about because it was a great episode I know I know that's the that's the jab in the heart it, if it had been something where we had a you know all kind of technical issues right other than be the like few, okay we, we had, needed to redo that right. One. right but yeah it was such a good one so Scott kick us off by telling us who you are and of course I have to say I love that you're in Tuscaloosa Alabama and roll yes, tide. I still say roll tide, absolutely. <laughs> and for those, I'm going to tell tell our Georgia fans that might be listening, hey, congratulations, gang. It's your third in 80 years. You were way <laughs> overdue. We are thrilled for you. We got seven and 14. When you get close to that, we'll talk. I don't think I'll be alive to have that conversation. No, <laughs> maybe not. But we're We, real, we we're also happy. can't fault. We can't fault. I mean, Kirby Smart is one of the most loyal to to, to Nick, and they're such great friends. So Absolutely. it's awesome to see Kirby finally break through the ceiling and, and get that championship. So Absolutely. you know, happy for him, and yeah. and they definitely wanted it more. Sure, and and like I said, I'm thrilled for him. Three and eighty years—that is a real accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm so. just thrilled. SEC, any way you look at it, the SEC has the championship yet again, because we know it's the greatest league in football. Conference. It just That's is, right. whether people like it or not. And we will be back. Most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. The, those freshmen, so, the future is bright. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you for having me on again. Again. And, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and again, our I, apologies. I think it, it was meant to it was meant to be. We we we're not going to let the enemy continue to attack. So we we got we'll overcome it. Yep. Um, it was definitely a great conversation. I don't. I'll be honest. If, if I try to remember, I probably won't. <laughs> so we're just going to go with the conversation like we did last time. Sure, exactly. absolutely. Um, but for those out there, my my name is Scott Sloss. I'm actually an Equal Justice Works fellow, and I'm working on what they call the Veterans Law Project. So I retired from the military in 2018. And three days later, I started law school and having no idea what I wanted to do with a law degree. And as I went through law school, uh, I fell in love with just helping my fellow veterans out. And so I applied for this fellowship. And so for the next two years, I get to give free legal services to veterans and their families within the Tuscaloosa and, and greater surrounding areas here in the, the great state of that. Alabama. I love the way he says that. I get to give them. I, I got to. You know, I give so much of my time to people. I, I have to change my verbiage. Right. I get to. I get to do that. You're allowed to do that. I like that. Thank you, Scott. I, that that changes my attitude a little bit here on Friday morning <laughs> of Hell Week. Well, good. I mean, it's. I think it's all a blessings when you know you you have to change. One of my big things is like I like to change the perspective on how I look at things yep. because we we love to focus on the negative. Mm-hmm. And I want, I like to quote, flip the script and, and look at the positive and look at things through a different light. And when we look at the blessings God's given us, we get to do these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's something I don't have to do anymore. You know, I retired from the army. I'm good to go. So now I get to do what God's called me to do. Well, and I, you know, I read that somewhere and it's an attitude I did change about Sunday mornings, especially when I've been up late with crisis calls on the crisis line all night and I talk to my dog because that's the only living creature in the house. And the bird, I'm afraid what he might say back to me, so I don't talk to him. And he's in the backyard anyway. Um, but I started changing when I'm talking to her on Sunday mornings about our day. And I go, I used to say, I'm going to church. And now it's, I get to go to church because I'm alive. And God has afforded me that opportunity to live another day. And and it's a blessing to be able to go to church, even when you're tired and you've slept 45 minutes and, and, and you mm-hmm. look like you've been run over by a truck and all that stuff. But I get to go to church and it does change. It does change your outlook for the day. Absolutely does. So tell us about your military time. So I, um, I joined the army when I was 19. I started right after my parents had divorced in when I was 15, 16 years old. And, and I had some trials during that time. And my mom never wanted me to join the, join the military. And I tried to join out of high school. I remember the recruiter sitting in the sitting on the couch and we were having the conversation and my mom came home from work, saw the recruiter sitting on the couch, <laughs> grabbed her car keys, threw them at him, told him <laughs> to get out of the house, looks at me. And he, she says, you are not joining the army because I don't want you to turn out to be an a-hole like your father. <laughs> hey, at least she picked up the keys, not a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and so needless to say, I ended up going, I did um, a tech program for a business administration degree. The The young lady said, I didn't need to take any SAT or ACT to go to the school. I said, man, that sounds like a plan. I did a an associate's degree in business in 15 months. And then I was working I always tell people I sold bowling. Um, 
I went and worked for four bowling centers in Eastern Pennsylvania and he called me the promotional director <laughs> and he, <laughs> I thought it sounded great. Come on, you're, you're 19 years old. You just finished up with, you know, what you considered a, a great college degree. He said, you can, you get mileage or a car, you get this business card, you get an office. Um, I got one of those Sounding good like, so far. Um, yeah, right up there with the CFO <laughs> and the CEO. <laughs> There's a I got one somewhere. of the National Lampoon station wagons was my company vehicle <laughs> with the wood paneling going down the side. Love it. I walked into I walked into Lancaster, Pennsylvania to a place called Rocky Springs Bowling Lanes. Wow. And the manager, you know, the when you go to a snack bar at the old bowling alleys, they had that little table that would lift up next to the cash register so you could walk back well he lifted that up he took me he took me back to the supply area and i'm like well, why are we going back here <laughs> and he had put up a piece of two pieces of plywood in the back corner and cut a hole out to make a door and took one of those old rickety lane tables and chairs and stuck in there with a telephone and that was my fancy office Wow, he is right up there with the CFO and the CEO. Yeah, they didn't lie; they got you an office. You and then, and then I my bet first you've learned son. to ask better questions. Oh, since absolutely, you were absolutely. <laughs> and his first assignment was: he's like, "Now I'm 19. I'm like, and there's Lancaster, Pennsylvania had a mall called Park City Mall. I think it was like a two or three story mall. And he said, "I need you to go to the mall, and I need you to ask every." store in there if they'd like to put a bowling team together so we can have a league this winter called the park city league and i'm like you want me to do what <laughs> uh, so i did it um he set a goal of 12 teams i got 16 teams to join but it was the most awkward start to my my sales career walking into k jewelers and victoria's secrets and you know all those stores and saying hey would you like to put a bowling team together Wait a minute, back uh, you up. You can imagine the laughs that I got. Wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, back up. This bowling company sent a 19-year-old into Victoria's Secret, <laughs> or was that your idea? <laughs> it was. I had to go to every store in the mall. And, you know, they every just mall's got to be there. Okay, all right. Just you got Vicky's and Spencer's and K. You know, remember these are cops and military people listening. They're thinking 19, and they're paying me to go in Victoria, and nobody can complain. It's my job. That's right. It's my job. It's I was my job to be here. So, but we but we did that, and I did that for about a year and in the middle in March of 98 my father passed away oh, wow. um, suddenly from a heart attack on his way home from work hmm. and my dad had done 27 and a half years in the army reserves at that time and he was working as a civilian on post as a mechanic and I'd always wanted to be in the army I used to shine his boots and get his uniforms ready so he would take me to the reserve meetings and that was in March of 98 by September, I had had enough. I was ready. I was living on my own. I didn't, I just knew I wasn't going anywhere. I was doing stuff I shouldn't have been doing. And I walked into the recruiter's office and I became his favorite person. Cause I said, <laughs> I want to go to the army. I want to jump out of airplanes and I want to shoot guns. And so I signed up for an airborne ranger contract in September and I shipped off to basic training in October of 1998. Sounds like the best job in the world to me. Shoot. Yeah. I, well, right. Not now. 
Um, I ain't jumping out of nothing that's yeah, I don't know perfectly do performing. <laughs> now, if the engines are failing, I might be a little more motivated. <laughs> so, yeah, so I went off to Fort Benning in October of 98 as an enlisted infantryman. And I stayed that way until 2008. Uh, my last assignment, well, my last job as an enlisted person, I was a drill sergeant from 2004 to 2007 down at Fort Benning. Also, during my enlisted time, I deployed to Afghanistan in 2002-2003 with the 82nd Airborne Division and the 504th Parachute Infantry Regiment, the good old devils in baggy pants. Mm -hmm. Then um, while I was a drill sergeant, my commanders had said that you probably should think about going to OCS. Mm -hmm. And I never thought I could do that because, again, first generation college student we didn't grow up with a, we never owned anything had a whole lot of nothing growing up so going to become an officer was not something i ever gave much thought to but i applied i got selected and in 2008 i went to officer candidate school at fort benning mm -hmm. and the army in its infinite wisdom took a 10-year trained infantryman and drill sergeant and said we're going to make you an engineer <laughs> so I, became, uh, I went off and became an engineer officer, which actually turned out to be a huge blessing in my life to go from the infantry into the engineer because it made me change my outlook on what I was doing. Because I I have a feeling had I stayed infantry, sometimes I wonder if I would even be sitting here today. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Yes. <laughs> yes. So... Um, well, thank you I, for your service. We we can't go without yes. saying that for sure. Well, it was an honor to serve. Thank you. And so here I sit today after doing that for 20 years. And I believe I shared last time. And if I didn't, I want to make sure we share this time. So when I was getting ready to retire, those last year and a half, two years of my military career were the toughest of my life because I, I really you know, I was giving up my identity. Mm -hmm. At that time, I felt my identity was in the military. It's everything I've known, everything I've done. You're a part of a culture. You're a part of like a team that you're just, you're so accustomed to, and you don't know what it's going to be like when you get out. Sure. And I had no idea what I wanted to do when I got out. But I do know at that time, I didn't want to be a veteran. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be looked at because I was looked at as if I were broken yep. um, or crazy or any of that. So when I retired, I was at my lowest, one of my lowest points in my life. Um, and that was tough. What made and then you I decide started, to retire? I could know. I remember hearing from a leader of mine that you'll know when it's time to retire, when you can't give 100% of yourself to the soldiers that you lead. Okay. And I knew at that point, it was not fair to those that were, in, in my charge, even though as I believe as a leader, you're a servant leader, I couldn't continue to serve the soldiers that I was leading with 100% of me because I have my family and I wanted to make sure my family took priority, you know, God, yeah. my family, my church, my job. And I couldn't do that anymore. Sure. And so I thought it was best that I didn't want to give them 90 or 80% of me. I, they deserved all of it. So I knew it was time to walk away. Well, and the military has a way of taking over your life sure, and consuming all your time so that you don't give any to your family, to God, to things you enjoy. Just like law enforcement right. does. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I'm sitting here as you're saying those things, and I'm thinking Tom and I are teaching a 
leadership class to a police department he retired from uh, the end of the month. And I'm thinking there's some chiefs, not necessarily at Tempe, but there are some chiefs of police around this country that need to hear those words. Right. And, and they probably hadn't been in it two years, um, but they they aren't leading. And I like that servant leader. Right. Uh, comment because you're absolutely right that that's one of the things we talk about is you know the job of a of a supervisor to be a good leader is to realize you're there to get your people what they need because that's your position not what are they there to do for you it's the other way around right well we look at the greatest example of leadership of all time and that's jesus yes i mean he was he was sent here to be a servant yes uh and if you look at the leadership lessons he's taught you and has taught us, I mean, that's the perfect example of how you should be when you're leading any organization. Absolutely. And, and I will tell you one thing I, you know, I made a comment I couldn't give a hundred percent anymore, but what I have learned since I've retired is I wasn't given a hundred percent because or able to give a hundred percent because I wasn't prioritizing how I was doing my life. Right. And I feel that if you learn to prioritize your time right, a healthy individual is going to be able to commit. You can still commit to your family in a healthy way to be able to give 100% to the people that you are serving while you're in that leadership position. And I had lost that balance. Sure. One of the things that I was talking to a client in here yesterday about, I said, you know, there are basically four priorities in life. And if you get these priorities all out of whack, your life's going to be messed up. I don't care what you do. And mm -hmm. it has to start with God, and then it has to be yourself. And, you know, people in the South lose their minds when I say this. And I go, but if you're not taking care of yourself, there's nothing left to give to the third priority, your family, and the fourth mm -hmm. priority is this job. Now, I have to get real specific sometimes with police officers, and I tell them, that does not mean that you, your kids don't get new school shoes and you get to go buy another gun. That is not <laughs> what I'm telling you. You said take care of self. <laughs> that yeah. is not what I'm talking about. <laughs> but if you're not healthy, you know, you'll empty out and, and there's nothing left to give. And that's, um, I think that's exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah. If you allow your everything to pour out of you, like say pour out of your cup, and you're not doing anything to refill your cup. Yep. There's going to be a point when you don't have anything left to give. That's it. So you've got to focus on what are you doing to refill your cup? Sure. And everybody's got their thing, sure. you know, whether it's quiet time or, you know, basketball or going shooting might be something that just, you need to have something that re-energizes you so that when you walk through the door of your house, you're able to give as much to your family as you're giving to the job. Some would say it's me yelling and screaming at him in my office. <laughs> there may be some truth to that rejuvenation <laughs> you know when you get to poke the bear that has the gun and they don't and they don't fight back yeah yeah that's that that's kind of that'll lift you up a little bit <laughs> yes yes so the i wanted to talk a little bit about the the veterans law project yes because yes. that's how so i ended up after I retired, I went to law school. I spent my first year at Cumberland School of Law, which is in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. And uh, mind you, I told you I didn't want to be a veteran. Well, I ran across John Carroll. He is a professor up there. He used to be the dean. But most importantly to me, he was a Vietnam-era veteran. 
Judge Carroll is somebody that has always had my utmost respect since I first moved to Alabama in 1988 as a litigation paralegal. That man is amazing. Yes. And I, and he looked at me and he goes, you are a veteran. And he goes, I'd like you to join me at the Veterans Legal Help Desk that's run by Volunteer Lawyers Birmingham. And they used to do it once a month on one Wednesday a month at the VA hospital there in Birmingham, but then they moved it to twice a month. And I started attending those the first year with Judge Carroll. And I remember the first time I went, I was sitting at a table and there's this young man sitting across from us. And he was talking about a situation that he was having with his child and some other legal issues. And I'm just listening to, to John talk to him, you know, trying to figure out He's asking questions to figure out the legal issues, to get them to talk. Mm -hmm. I realized the more John talked, the more this guy was, you know, I don't like the word triggered, but the guy was being alerted. Something was, something was happening to him. And I could see that his, his whole dynamic was changing from a peaceful to a very angry sure. while we were there. And so I just kind of stepped in and I started asking questions about his son and just talking about what is his son like? And all of a sudden I realized he started to come down and get to a more level ground with us. And by the time we were done, John, we had figured out what he needed. He was calm. He was happy. We gave a big hug. And John looked at me and he said, that's why you're here. <laughs> you're, you're the flip side to judge. <laughs> well, it was because it was a, it's, there's a difference. I, you know, and, and we have to acknowledge it. There's a difference between a Vietnam era vet and the experiences that they went through when they came home right. where they were unaccepted. They were just trashed for what they were doing to a 9-11 vet who oftentimes, you know, we were celebrated. People are always trying yes. to thank for your service. So there's a difference in mentality of veterans. And I think mm -hmm. understanding that you can relate to them, you know, sure. in that way. I, I try to relate to a Vietnam vet, but I don't think I could ever imagine what it would be like to get off a plane and have eggs and just stuff thrown at me and protesters right. standing out there. Versus when I came home, we had banners saying, welcome home, and everybody was hugging and, and news media were covered in a positive manner. Well, then you also have to add that the draft was going on. Yes. We now have a volunteer military. Thank God for each and every one, I say as a proud Marine mom. But back then, you were told you were going. Right. Right. Whether you wanted to or not. And there was a lot that did not. And, and, every, <laughs> and, you know, every, yeah. and everybody's yeah. not cut out to do that job, right. honestly and truthfully, nor should they be. <laughs> but, yeah, you're, you're right. It is, and I really hadn't even thought about it from that perspective of services being provided. But you're absolutely right. You're dealing with a little bit different circumstance and mentality and stuff than what we have today. Right. And then also along with that is acknowledging women yes. in their service, mm -hmm. because that was a difference. You know, the VA system was designed around men sure. on how do we get men into services. So a lot of the VA healthcare systems and resources that they have, we're still trying to overcome that right. where women have the services that they need to get help. Um, and at least understanding that, and I have the benefit of my wife, uh, she's also a veteran. So I get to see her perspective on the fight that she takes to get to some of the services that I just take for granted because they were focused around a male getting those type of things in the VA. Let me ask you this too, because it's something that's always kind of bothered me since my son signed up for the Marine Corps and 
they wouldn't let me go with him to the desert. I don't understand that whole concept, but anyway, whatever. Um, but it always kind of hurt my feelings because he's not married. Um, and it always kind of hurt my feelings that family parents were kind of left out. You know, oh, there, there, yeah. there really wasn't much for families. And now that you're bringing that up about the Vietnam situation too, and I think about parents that lost kids that didn't volunteer. I mean, it'd be hard enough to lose one who volunteers, right. but your kids are told by the government they're going and then they get killed. Is there anything for families, for parents? Well, you have the Gold Star program right? that I believe they could get involved with. But that's a, I think that's a very, very good question that I don't know the whole answer to. Um, the only experience I've had is with the Gold Star program and doing some volunteer stuff. And I've there's a couple of those families I know very well, but I just, they are very close knit um, when they get to know each other and they support each other. And I just, sure. I don't know, I was in awe that the one family I got to spend time with, the stories they shared, the love they shared, they're not afraid. I mean, she's remarried and her husband, you know, supports that. Mm -hmm. um, he's also in the military, but it was just, I don't know. It was a very unique situation that I was just blessed to be a part of, to watch how that family interacted and still talk about him openly with everyone. And, the, and especially his daughter, he never got a chance to meet his daughter. She was pregnant when he was, was killed in Iraq. Sure. But his daughter, you would think that she's known him as her whole life. Sure. Because it's, they, they talk about it. So I, I believe there's stuff out there, but I can't. His goal. I think that's a bear belt for how long. I mean, Obviously that's not growing question. up in yeah, a military I family. I didn't know if they were even around in Vietnam or is that something that started back in World War One or whatever. But um and it and it is. It's an amazing program and stuff. But it just it really is hard being being the you know, you go, Hey, I'm the one that gave birth to him. You wouldn't have him <laughs> if it wasn't for me. We'll give the dad a little credit for contributing, but I'm the one that did the work. Um, but it it is an area I do feel like people need to to look a little more at because every every person in the military is not married. And right, right. It, I tell you, it was a it was a gut punch to me. And my son laughed. He thought didn't think it was any big deal. But I came home one day before I guess it was I can't remember if it was before his deploy it must have been before his deployment. And I walk in and laid out on my kitchen counter like, you know, today's mail was his power of attorney for me to sign his will his all this stuff and i walk in and i'm like crying and he goes what's the matter with you and i said literally you just lay this stuff out you don't have a conversation now mom you need to understand and he's like what's the big deal and i'm like no parent thinks about i don't give birth to kids and go gosh i might have to bury him one right. day and i thought really you couldn't have found a little kinder gentler way to have kind of eased me into this <laughs> Could put some little hearts on the sign here, yeah, stickers, maybe. Something. <laughs> no, anything. I was like, next time. No, there won't be a next time. <laughs> but it, it really is, you know, and there wasn't anybody I could pick up the phone and call, truthfully, right. as as the mom, or at least I didn't know if there was. But, yeah, that's something in your little project there you got going on since you probably don't have much going on with it. That you can add that to your list. You could have always called that recruiter and gave him a hard time. Well, yeah. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd already chewed out the UPS man that showed up at the door that I thought was the recruiter. <laughs> That's a whole other episode, though. 
Uh, but it well, is something to think about. Yeah. And we yeah. need to think about it under the shield right. a little more too. Absolutely. And so, you know, after that first time sitting with John, I went back, I continued to go back to these, these help desks and another incident happened probably three, four months into it. I was sitting across the table from another gentleman. He was probably about my age. He was about my age, but I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and you've been in this situation where you're like, I know you, you know me, but we can't remember where from. And so I just started asking him the basic, I call them the basic veteran questions. Hey, when, what branch were you in? Oh, I was army. When, when did you join? What unit were you in? And by the time we asked all those questions, I'd found out that this was the guy that I used to sneak out of at basic training to go get Copenhagen because we slept three bunks apart in the same platoon <laughs> during infantry training at Fort Benning back in 1998. Has the statute of limitations run on that? Oh, sure. Okay, just make it yes. sure. <laughs> yeah. So it really wasn't a crime. Here we are, <laughs> sitting across. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble. Um, <laughs> We're sitting across the table from each other and I'm, I'm in a position now where I'm able to help. And he was trying to get custody of his kids that he had given custody to his mother for a certain time while he was doing, but we were able to get custody of his kids back for him. We were able to have some great conversations and reconnect, but it was the, the atmosphere that happened in that room when we made that instant connection from something that we had shared and it just filled the room because we got up and we gave each other a hug and we just started talking like we had been best <laughs> friends for the past 22 years. See, even criminal behavior can bring you together. <laughs> now we understand what goes on in the prisons. <laughs> it's that networking thing. That's right. <laughs> that is. It is. <laughs> and so it was It was at that point, you know, I really started to, to – I was starting to see the veteran aspect. But I fell into the same trap that a lot of it doesn't matter how old you are when you go to law school, everybody's the same. Absolutely. Like you're all trying to figure out what it is you want to do. And I I did pretty well. I finished in the top 12% of my class my first year. And so I thought that meant I had to go work for a bigger law firm and do the the paid internships and things like that. And I did. And I and I greatly enjoy it. And and I say that I I greatly appreciate the people I got to meet and that, and that took that chance on me. Sure. But I did that for two years and it got to the point where I was offered a full-time job about halfway through my second year of law school for when I graduated contingent, you know, on passing the bar and I had accepted it. And I was like, man, this is what I'm going to do. Well, that last six months leading into my second summer, I'd been working on some cases and it just, I just felt this conviction in my heart that this is not, this is not what I'm supposed to do. This is, this is not where my heart's at. Um, I want to, I want to see people. I want to help people. I went to law school because I felt it was my purpose and not because I have to, it's because I wanted to do this. Right. Right. And I went to the employer and I said, I'm sorry, my heart's not in it. And I was really scared. I was afraid that they were going to be like, no, nah, hold on. You said you were going to put the, the amount of support they gave me and said, no, we, we see it. We're, we want you to follow your heart and the door will always be open if you ever want to come back. Nice. And so I pursued this fellowship and at the, let's see, it was the beginning of my third year of law school and law school is three years. I put the application in and they said, you'll get it, you know, 
put it in in September, they review them in October and November, they'll start calling for interviews. So, you know, November 1st rolled around and I'm just waiting by the phone every day. Am I going to get this email? Am I going to get this phone? Then December came around. Then January came around. <laughs> and, and I'm like, man, I, I thought I was competitive. Guess I like everybody said, you're, you're going to be very competitive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I got an email in January giving an update that, you know, I'll be, that quote said, you're very competitive, but nobody has put you in their queue for interviews. I'm like, okay, that's nice. Then February rolled around and I got another email that said something similar, but also added like, Hey, if you have other opportunities, you know, just let us know if you take one of them. And I'm like, okay, now they're telling me that (laughs) this is going to happen. And then it was in, I believe it was the beginning of March. Now the interviews, I believe end at the end of March and I got my one chance and I got a email from equal justice works that said they would, that Thompson Reuters and Sherman and Sterling would love to interview me. Wow. And I was like, okay. And she said that that email was on a Wednesday. My interview was on Friday. <laughs> and so we did a Zoom interview because of COVID. And I sat there and did the interview with them. And I got to share my story with them because they had asked me, what do you want to do with this project? And I said, well, you've already read what I want to do. I'd like to tell you why I'd want to do it. Mm-hmm. And I gave them the story of my background and what Jesus has done in my life and, and the passion that I have for wanting to serve veterans and why I wanted to serve veterans. And I remember getting done with the interview and my wife saying, well, that was great, honey. You might've just blew that shot. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. Nothing like a little moral support. From the home front. <laughs> and, but she's like, you know, you're, she goes, sometimes you're too honest. And I was like, I don't think you can ever be too honest. And it was what, three, four days later, I got the email and the phone call back. um, The Zoom interview back where they offered me the fellowship. And they said, we can give you some time to think about it. And I said, I don't need any time at all. God has put everything into place. This was the call that I was waiting for. And I knew the answer was yes immediately. So how many fellowships were given out? I believe it's in the around 40. And they were all the over the country. Okay. All right. Cool. Oh, and they, and doing various different projects. So I write, basically the best way to describe it is I wrote my project on the job that I would like to do. I wrote my dream job and somebody else bought on said, we like that. We mm-hmm. want to do this. We like what you're doing. So we're going to pay you the next two years to do what you want to do. Wow. And there's nothing to beat that. And the amount of support I can, I have to, you know, Thompson Reuters and Chairman and Sterling have been an equal justice works the team there. Absolutely incredible. I was not prepared for the amount of support that I received from, you know, large corporations that, you know, they're not local. Right. But the amount of support they give me, the inspiration they give me, I mean, I send them monthly updates on what we're doing and it's a constant communication back and forth great. Uh, with the support they give. And I, I'm just very blessed to have people that are willing to pour into me and then offer any assistance that I need. If I need something, I can call them or shoot them an email and they'll be like, yeah, what can we do to help? Um, so it's been a huge blessing to be able to do that. What's the, and motivation's not really the right word I'm looking for, but what, what drove those two large corporations to want to 
fund something like this? Do you know? I will tell you. So I did ask them about why they chose me. Mm-hmm. And the because I said I was going to do this podcast and I wanted to make sure I talked about them because they're a very important and integral part of what we're doing. And their answer to me was my passion. Nice. They want somebody that they to invest in that they know is going to give it all mm-hmm. and has a heart for wanting to serve that particular area. And they said the passion that I displayed in my interview and why I wanted to do it was put was what put me over the edge um, for the job. Are they known for being very pro-veteran anyway? Are they one who hires a lot of veterans or? Yes, both organizations actually have affinity groups that support veterans. Great. So um, I actually had the opportunity to speak at Thomson Reuters and Shearman and Sterling over Veterans Day. Mm-hmm. During that week, they called me in and I got to speak to their global corporations about wow. my project and, and what veterans do. And I was very, you know, what is it? Diversity and inclusion is a big word now. Right. And everybody's kind of got their own definition of it. And one thing I really love, Sherman and Sterling has, I spoke at their diversity and inclusion conference program because veterans is one of the four affinity groups that they associate with diversity and inclusion. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it's nice to be able to promote large corporations who are doing things like this for the right Right. reason, not just to throw their names out there. So good. They definitely, Tommy Williams. Um, oh, yeah, I'm good with saying his name. He's big into to helping me, and then the pro bono. So the person who interviewed me for Schumann and Stern is their pro bono counsel for their global corporation, and that's all she does. And she is an incredible woman, and has been doing this for a long time in New York. And just to kind of see what she has done, this is their passion too. They love the idea of pro bono services and helping people that it's not just about the bottom line. It's yeah. it's about what are we doing to give back to the community and supporting those that are trying to help others. Sure. Sure. And what a better group to give back to the veterans that give up so much. Absolutely. And and so how long is this fellowship? This is currently running. It's currently running. I started in September of 2021 and I will continue on until August of 2023. So it's a 2-year fellowship. Okay. And in the short time that I've been doing this, I think we're up over 35 clients that I've assisted or am I currently assisting? Mm-hmm. I have a legal, we run a legal help desk the first Wednesday of every month at the Tuscaloosa VA hospital, which includes myself. And then I have other volunteer attorneys within the Tuscaloosa bar and, and area in the school that come and assist and law students that will help with the client intakes. Nice. The First week of my fellowship was something I never, I didn't actually have down as a goal. I had a goal of assisting the Tuscaloosa County Veterans Treatment Court, as I had done throughout law school. But I went over, and because of that treatment court, I had a client who was in trouble in a neighboring county. And I went out to speak with the neighboring county because I had sent an email, and I'm going to say this, and it's kind of funny, but equal justice work sometimes gets confused with equal justice project and some other ones out there that they think that I'm trying to like get rid of prisons and do all this stuff. And so the, <laughs> yeah, let's make that person, clear. That is not your objective. <laughs> that is not my objective. And, but I say that because 
when I wrote that in the email, it turned off that particular group that I had sent the email to because they thought, oh, this guy is coming after us. What is he trying to do? Right. And there's story behind that. And I'll, it'll, it'll, I'll leave that story alone. But I went over there and met them. And so the, I know the audience can't see, but I'm a six foot two guy with a shaved head and a, and a big beard that I look like a veteran. That's what I say. And I walked <laughs> he in. Does. He really does. <laughs> we'll attest to that. <laughs> it's, but I walked in and, and I typically, unless I'm like in trial or in court, you know, I'll wear blue jeans, my cowboy boots, a shirt and, and, a, and a sport coat. And I walked in and I met the district attorney and we started talking and we hit it off instantly. And he said, you're not what I was expecting. And I was like, well, that's, I typically get that. And he says, but I think you're the guy to start this a veterans treatment court here in Pickens County, Alabama. And I was not prepared for that, but I knew it was something we needed to do. So now you fast forward since September till now, we are now officially looking for clients that are going to be able to participate in veterans treatment court in Pickens County, Alabama. We've worked through with other courts in the state of Alabama and justice for vets out of DC to put together this program. And we're going to launch this with the hopes of expanding it to Lamar and Fayette County, which are also part of that judicial district in Alabama. And, And this is the rural side. This is West of Tuscaloosa going towards the Mississippi line. Um, not as populated, Right. And it's just a, it's, I am so looking for, we've got help from not just the VA because the VA is involved in this and we have a social worker that's going to help along with it, but also the, the state side, we have the mental institution and facility that helps with mental health. She goes to church with me nice. and we talked about it. And now they had just opened a treatment facility in Pickens County. So like, this is a God thing. So that's there yep. and she's willing to help to get the guys, if they can't get help at the VA, let's get them help here because that's the purpose of the program. Isn't for them to get their case dismissed. That's right. That's, that's great. But what are we doing to get them the help? So they don't do this again. Right. Or what, what are we doing to get them the help that they deserve or need? Or ultimately let's talk honestly, veterans are afraid to ask for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want you to talk about veterans treatment court, because this is something I've only recently learned about in the last maybe year. And again, it came through our resource that guided us to you. And that's that amazing woman we call a friend mm-hmm. named Kirsten, who's <laughs> a walking complete encyclopedia. <laughs> and I don't mean one book. I'm talking about the sets. That the I the entire set. <laughs> She's a whole thing. <laughs> amazing. But uh, because a lot of our law enforcement officers are veterans and they are not aware of it either. And I know I had a, a um, army veteran that, uh, working as a police officer, wound up with a DUI. And nobody seemed to know about veterans court here. And I was like, okay, um, let's find out about it. And it actually was something where we were able to keep the DUI from being too impactful on his um, record. And so talk to us about Veterans Court, how it works, who they would reach out to if they're not in Alabama. How do they find out about this stuff? Well, the the number one resource, I think, is Justice for Vets. 
run, they, they're an expert on veterans treatment courts. And there's over 600 veteran treatment courts in the country. And I know that sounds like a lot, but that's really a drop in the bucket when you think of all the judicial districts across the country. And the idea behind the veterans treatment court is to get them treatment. The dismissal or the probation track of their, of their charge is really, it's just a byproduct of them getting the treatment that they need, whether it's for alcohol or drugs or mental health, where all those comprise together. The key candidate for this is anybody, it could be a felony conviction. We try to stay with nonviolent convictions, but that's not, it's a case by case basis. And and the DA really runs this because the DA is the one that's going to offer them the plea. So they'll plea into, it's like a deferment program, but with the focus on getting them into a rehab facility or a treatment facility, they have to agree to stay sober. That's drugs and alcohol. They have to agree to go to any meetings that the judge orders them to. So AA, NA, celebrate recovery. And the judge can also order them to go into an inpatient treatment program based on the recommendations of the social worker and the attorneys that are working on the case. And this really, to me, is personnel driven. If you've got the right district attorney, the right program coordinator slash attorney for the veterans, the correct treatment facilities, and then honestly, a judge that is willing to look at everybody in a holistic manner on an individual basis, rather than a checklist on a piece of paper. That's what's going to make these treatment courts successful. So with the veterans treatment court, the focus is getting them into treatment. And what I like to see is it can be a difficult task for the attorney slash program coordinator slash the district attorney, because you really want the people that want the help. Yes. Like you have to have that honest conversation with them to say, look, this is a 12 month program at a minimum. Okay. Are you willing to commit to getting yourself better towards sobriety, towards mental wealth, you know, mental health, wellness? Are you willing to commit to that? Or is your intention and only intention is I really don't want this to be on my record. So I'll do whatever I have to do to get it to go off my record. And I think you have to weigh that because that can really dictate the success of your program. Because if you, you know, one bad apple can ruin the the bunch. Sure. And so you, I think it's very important you do that, but I think it's also such some veterans just don't know they need the help. Mm -hmm. And that's where you've got to have that balance of understanding people and looking at them and saying, okay, I believe as they get into this program, it's going to make a difference in their life, but they also have to volunteer for it. They can't be ordered into this program. This is is something they have to. Yeah. Is there a limit that we can, you can only take 10 or how does that work? We don't have a, no, there's no limit here in Tuscaloosa County. I don't have plan on having a limit in Pickens County where we do it. It's just a matter of we've got to get them in there and and get them through the process. And and I'm seeing that now because I've been in the Veterans Treatment Court in Tuscaloosa for over two years and tons of stories of success stories. I had a, a gentleman, we'll just call him Mr. F. He came in and he was a retired um, officer in the Army. Mm-hmm. 
he had a problem with alcohol and he thought it was just as normal. He goes, that's just who I am. Like I stop and I get drinks and I, and I go with it. Mm -hmm. And he had tested because they test for alcohol and they test for drugs. They do it on a color coding system. And we were talking to the judge because he had alcohol in the system. Mm -hmm. And I just remember the judge asking him, what would you have said to one of your soldiers if they were standing in front of you like you're standing in front of me? Wow. Mm -hmm. And he kind of looked at him and he's like, he kind of got standoffish. Well, I walked out into the hallway with him and I mean, it it ended up working, but I didn't know if it would or would not. But I went out there and I took my fingers and I poked him square into his chest. And I said, until you get that right, ain't nothing going to get right. You need to know in your heart that you want to commit to this and make yourself better and make yourself sober. And I said, I'm a retired officer. I'm an alcoholic. I've been sober now for a year. Now it's been two and a half years. At that time, it was a year and a half. Congratulations. Something to be proud of there. And and I told him, I was like, my heart changed. Mm-hmm. And until you get your heart right. And that was the only thing I said to that guy. <laughs> we graduated him last month. And when <laughs> he got to talk about the graduation, he pointed at me and he goes, that poke in the chest is what I needed. Wow. <laughs> so you, I don't think you ever realize, you know, I tell people, everybody's a leader, right? You just don't realize it. The impact that you have on people you sometimes will never see the end result of it. I was very blessed to see a result where this guy said, look, that little poke in the chest, that two minute conversation you had in the hallway changed my look outlook on this program and what I could do. And that's just one story. There's, there's many other stories of these guys that are going through here. We had a guy graduate in 10 months because he went from being addicted to crack cocaine to getting clean, getting sober, and then graduating from CDL school. And the only thing holding him back from getting a full-time driving job was the fact that he was in this program. So we said, he did such a great job. We graduated him. He's now working full-time driving truck and one of the top employees at the company. Wow. That's and he looks back and he says, if I hadn't been given this chance to get right, is there I an, wouldn't be here. Is there an opportunity for those people that graduate from the um, program to then be involved, to promote it, to help others that are just coming in or need to come into the program? Yes, because there's also the veteran mentor aspect of it. Good. And my, people differ of opinions on this, that some people feel like maybe they shouldn't be mentors because I feel those are the perfect people to be mentors. <laughs> right. They've been through it. Yes. You know, those are the perfect ones to be mentors. If they, if we feel that they're in a healthy spot and they're doing well, mm-hmm. those should be the mentors. And that's a big part of the veteran program as well is having a resource of non-court, like non-court people, non-lawyers, non-judges, non-DAs, non-mental health professionals, yep. just veterans willing to volunteer their time to be a mentor to these individuals going through the program. And that's what I'm working on now here is I call it a stable, a stable of veterans Mm -hmm. that I can match up, whether it's male or female, young or old, Vietnam, 9-11, post 9-11, like the different veterans getting that so we can line that person up because, and if it doesn't work, we move on to another veteran mentor because we know a mentor-mentee relationship has to be a mutual relationship. Sure. Well, (laughs) they have to get it. And that's interesting to me because of, I I think one thing that anybody in mental health 
can agree upon is your best substance abuse counselors are recovering addicts. It, mm -hmm. Not all, but the majority, I think you will find, have gone through treatment because there is something about being able to look at someone and say, been there, done that. Exactly. And, you know, the, we operated under the shield off the principle of the new Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The old one, mm -hmm. it topped out with self-actualization. Well, I don't know who, but somebody took Maslow's hierarchy and added a new top to it, and it's called transcendence. And it's all about when you get your life in a better place, you reach down and pull somebody else up. Mm -hmm. That's the whole concept. That That's scripturally sound. God tells us that's what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so anybody that argues that these are not the right people to be mentors, um, I'd have to question what their background is and where they're coming from, because that doesn't even fit the model for mental health and substance abuse. Right. And I, I think some of those don't aren't mental health professionals that have that opinion. Sure. But I, I see it going well where we're at here. Mm -hmm. That's something I want to continue to work with. And, and I'm working with the school of social work at Alabama. I, I, I meet with one of the gentlemen that's over there mm -hmm. every other month, just to kind of talk. He keeps asking me, he's like, Scott, I don't know what I'm, what you want from me. I was like, <laughs> I don't think you understand it. By having these conversations, that's exactly what I want. Right. Is somebody that can give me a different perspective that's on the outside looking in. And what can I do better? How do I apply these things that I'm doing? What do you see? You know, something... And again, I don't know if this is a God thing, given the week I've had. Um, but one thing I'd like for you to even consider and think about, maybe there's a way to coordinate this into your program, but is our stress coach certification yes. for those mentors. Because to give them 40 hours of, of additional things that they can learn to give to other people through that, it it's, um, you know, we've had great success here over 30 years with stress coaching um, because you're in the game with them. It's not a mental health thing. It's not a licensed person. It's, it's somebody and all of our coaches have been there, done it, married to it, raised by it, given birth to mm -hmm. it. And, you know, that might be something, I mean, we could certainly come in and do a 40 hour certification with some of those that have completed the program and are now mentoring to give them some additional skills. Absolutely. And it's, you know, you mentioned it last time, and it was the one of the very first things I talked to my wife about as soon as we got off the off the last one was I would love to come out there and find a time to do that certification so that, again, I feel like we just talked about if I'm in it and I do it, it's something that I can promote and get other people to do um, with the value that it's going to provide. Sure. So it's definitely something I want to come out and, you know, uh, other motives, too. I'd like to come out there and see Jeremy. So. <laughs> He well, didn't want to come see we us. We found out his way. Okay, we got it. We got that picture. We understand. We see you where we are on the I priority mean. list. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, Jeremy's out there. It's a little self-serving motivation. Sure. I think you guys aren't, but what, a couple miles apart, we found out. Not far at all. Episode. Not far at all. Yeah, absolutely. And so, still want to have him on the podcast also. So maybe we can coordinate that in the very near future. Yeah, we'll put us both on there and we'll. 
Yeah. You might have a lot more laps than you expect. <laughs> oh, that would be fun. Well, that, you know, that's, that, that's a huge part. You know, a lot of podcasts are always real serious and get into political stuff and heavy things and all of that stuff. But, you know, to me, when people, the audience that we really try to attract, there's not enough laughter in the world. And body cams are now preventing them from even being able to use the healthy, sick humor. And so, you know, we want them to understand we want to talk about serious stuff, but we also need to bring some levity to it and lighten it up and not just bring everybody down and then go, here's my phone number. Call me. (laughs) (laughs) You're all screwed up. It's called job security for us. (laughs) Um, Oh, absolutely. But, you know, we all. I will tell you, I listened to. I listened to some of the podcast and one of the things that I wanted to, to to hit today was just how much I agree with what you, what you're talking about in your philosophy of like, we're trained when, whether we go into the military or we go into law enforcement, how they train us to use a weapon, to take a weapon apart. And we do all those things, but they never train us on what it was like after we had to fire that weapon exactly. um, at somebody, not just a target. And that's really driven home. And I, you know, I trained many. I did 14 cycles of 220 soldiers over three years when I was a drill sergeant. And when COVID first hit, we had a private group on Facebook. It was one of the platoons that I had trained. They started this group and they found me on Facebook. And so they sent a note. And of course, they said, drill sergeant, drill sergeant, join the group. <laughs> and so, you know, I joined this, I joined this group and and I had done right when COVID had I had done a like a little a podcast like video with the guys my pastor at church and the associate pastor and and we talked about how I I put hashtag be you on everything in the mornings mm-hmm. uh, because I believe you have to be you God created you to be a person and that's who you need to be and, and, and there's a lot that goes into it and I was kind of explaining that but see I wasn't a good person when I was a drill sergeant. I was not living the life that I should have been living. I was, I was a drunk. I was a, I was mean. I did a lot of things I shouldn't have been doing. And those kids saw that, but I trained them at that point to go and do what they needed to do at this time of, you know, this is 2004 to 2007. So we're surging into Iraq and we're doing all these things. And these kids are leaving basic training and within months are going overseas. Mm -hmm. Well, fast forward to this small group. And they said, we want to learn how to flip the script. We want to, we want what you got now. Why, why, why did you change? So we started doing a zoom meeting every Monday night nice. with a group of these. And the thing that stuck with me, that really just was the punch in the gut was one of the guys looked at me, he goes, drill sergeant. Cause they would not call me Scott, no matter how many times I tried. I can't blame him. Cause you're <laughs> always the drill sergeant. You hammered that. They knew the honey. It's called fear. That's right. <laughs> so they said, they said, he said, drill sergeant in the most sincere voice that you could just imagine. And, and we're looking at each other on zoom. He goes, you trained me to be the best. You trained me to do what I needed to do when I got overseas and, and I thank you for that because I got to come home. You know, I made it home. My soldiers made it home. He goes, but the one question I have for you is, why did you tell me how much it was going to hurt when I did get home? There you go. There you go. And I said, I can't, I said, I wish I had an answer, but at that time I didn't have an answer, but I feel now we have that answer after this 
extended period of conflict and even the history. Like, I think we've learned something that we need to have these conversations. We need to address the elephant in the room and not hide it anymore. If, you know, the stigma of mental health treatment is going away, like the stigma of you don't need to get help. You don't need to, it's weakness. I think now we're learning it's a source of strength that we can admit that we need to talk about this. And I think that's something that I agree with you on, that we need to move forward. And how do we get this incorporated into the programs, into the training, into what we're doing to prepare people, not to say that it's still not going to hurt, right? Right. But at least now we acknowledge that and we have things in line. It's almost like drug rehab. We have so many rehab facilities, but we don't have any, very few facilities that take them after rehab and help them facilitate getting a job. Right. Well, we detox too. We don't treat the trauma. Exactly. We detox the substance abuse. And this is where I have to call mental health out. And again, I have a master's in counseling, but like you, I wanted to do something different. I didn't want to do the traditional license route, but you know, the license world as important as they are, because they are very important, but they've also got to get out of this, trying to pigeonhole everything into a box that you can Mm -hmm. diagnose in that DSM because there are too many other things that come into play here that they're not always going to fit the diagnostic statistical manual. It isn't always about diagnosing people. Sometimes it's just about getting to know what's going on with them, what's bothering them and helping them with that. And we can't have it all be, well, I got to get you on access one, two, three or four or whatever so that I get paid through the insurance, but let's, let's start to be more compassionate and not get locked into this mandated reporting. It's old. It's an archaic principle. I understand it from certain perspectives, but good grief. People that are hurting got to be able to go somewhere and not have a fear of losing their job or their rank or what, or their gun or whatever. And that's where we're failing these special groups, military, law enforcement, first responders, because first of all, they know what to say and what not to say. (laughs) Y'all ain't stupid. And and you got to be able to talk about it openly and honestly. But that's where it comes in is we're missing the biblical principles of being genuine with who you are. You know, if you know what to say and what not to say, Mm -hmm. you're not being true. You're not actually addressing the issue in the first place. Sure. You're, you're sugarcoating it or you're avoiding it, which is a whole other problem. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I, you know, even when they asked me for like statistics of, hey, how's the program going? And this is one thing I love about Thompson and, and Sherman is I'll give them some statistics in the, in the first line. Hey, I've got a few more clients. I finished up a few clients, but I always give them one or two stories mm-hmm. of what actually happened. Because to me, that's the substance. Right. Did I make a change? Did the program make a change in someone's life this month? Sure. What effect did we have? Sure. And how did we get there? Because the numbers, I can, you can spout out numbers all day. Right. But to me, that's not the impact that you're making. The impact is the veteran that got into treatment and is now driving a truck or the veteran yes. that was able to get sober and has stayed sober or the mm-hmm. veteran that got to meet his family for the first time because they haven't had anything to do with him in years because of his alcoholism and, and drug addiction. Sure. Those are the things that matter. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the same way when we're talking about this is what law enforcement person or military person were you able to help? 
to overcome what they've gone through to make them and put them in a better position where they can continue to serve in a position that they were trained to do because they're probably really good at their job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what I mean by you're right. They're not being genuine, but when the system is set up to hurt them, if they are genuine, that has Mm -hmm. to change also. And, And not in that there's never a place for that, but we can't have it be just that. And that's where we uh, was with a department yesterday talking about the three-tiered approach of peer support, like the mentoring you're talking about, as well as the license world. But there's a huge gap there for people that are afraid to go to the license side because, again, every counselor and every psychologist is different. How they interpret it, I laugh and say confidentiality begins when you walk through that person's door and you don't know if that person is going to interpret your appearance you're not sleeping, you're fighting with your wife, you're drinking too much or whatever is you being suicidal. And the next thing they know, they're being reported to their department. Another counselor mm-hmm. or psychologist may not do that to them, but they never know. And that's right. why there's got to be a place where it's safe. And that's what I was encouraging this department is as educators, we can do those assessments in a non-threatening environment and then get them to the resources we have vetted who are specific um, providers for law enforcement, military, um, and that kind of thing who understand and don't overreact to a cop who says, I'm going to kill my lieutenant. And I go, (laughs) what's that lieutenant's name? Yeah, I got him on my list too. We're good. Um, I I can understand where you're coming from. Does he mean he's going to go do it? No, but that's how he knows how to express it. And a licensed person would have a real hard time not taking that seriously. And I get that. Right. But we got to broaden the horizons here and, and bring more things to the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I loved it when I was, you asked me to come on and, and talk about this because this is, this is near and dear to my heart. You know, yeah, what it's, a great it's personal. Yeah. We, and we can yeah. tell, and that's, these are the kind of people because we're passionate here at under the shield. It's the only thing um, other than this is what God put me on this earth to do. Cause cognitively looking at it, there's no reason I should still be here 30 years later with the resistance. And it's all about passion and, and God's purpose here of why, why you're on this earth and what it is you're supposed to be doing. And I have no doubt this is what he put me here for today. That could change tomorrow. Just be aware, Tom, you may have picked this ball up and run, honey. Um, plus I'm getting old. I keep telling y'all this and nobody's paying me any attention. Uh, but, you know, Scott, we can't thank you enough for not just doing this once, but doing it twice. <laughs> and again, I promise I won't lose this one. Yeah, this one won't get lost. This one will be recorded in history to never, ever go away ever again. <laughs> and, uh, but we want to remind our audience, too, that we are here 24-7. Um, you can call us. It's full anonymity. You can make up a name. You can be your chief, your sheriff, whoever you want to be. Our toll-free number is 855-889-2348. My cell number is 334-324-3570. I'm going to give your info. And my phone number is 480-861-6574. And this is for families, um, not just the sworn or the fire or the military. Reach out to us. We feel like families are the first line of defense. They are the ones who see the early warning signs. Call us. 
you know, we may be able to get you going in the right direction to head other issues off, but we can't help what we don't know. And this is just such a, a population that we are so passionate about that we feel like this is um, without these groups that we work with, society's in big trouble. Right. I mean, we're in trouble with them. We're going to be in real big trouble without, without them. them. And so this is what we do. We will never ask your name. We will never write anything down. Uh, as a matter of fact, when you call the 855 number, if you hit extension one, uh, that will route the number through our office. And the number that pops up on the stress coach's phone is actually the crisis line number. So we don't even know who you are or where you are. No so, way to connect. Yeah. So if you we get disconnected, you're going to have to call us back. And we've been <laughs> getting quite a few numbers <laughs> and calls at night right now. And it all pops up UTS. And so please, please, please reach out to someone. But we are here and we're not just a referral source. We provide the services give you some insight on what might be going on and give us a chance to help you. So we just want to thank you for your service, um, Scott, uh, from all fronts, because you're continuing to serve. Even though you're retired from the military, you're serving in a different capacity. And we want to thank all of our listeners that are first responders as well as families. Families are never told enough what an important role they play. Definitely the thankless part of the job. Amen to that one. Yes. And, yes. and I can say that from, from firsthand experience and um, we love you out there. We hope you'll tune in next week again. Who knows who we're having? It's always a get, you know, it's, it's always a big mystery here. Maybe, maybe Scott will come back for a third time. Yeah. <laughs> we will have him back. I'm always available. But I want to have you on the couch. There you go. I want you in the office, not on the computer. And, uh, so, well, we might have to just do a, a travel to Alabama so we can get all the roll tides involved in this. And... Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> well, Susie, you can you can go on our road trip with us in March. Going to go right through there. See, you can drop me off. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, another bonus, I get to see my child. So. <laughs> but God bless all of you out there. And again, thank you for your service and sacrifice. And Reach out to us here at Under the Shield and let us know how we can help. Or if you want to get involved with us, that's an option also. And we'd love to get more people around the country trained in this. Yeah, reach out to us because we can't find you. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. So stay safe. Take care. God bless. God bless this great nation that we live in and your families and all that you do. And one last thanks to Scott. Yes. Appreciate <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all. I appreciate you all. <laughs> we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>